What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, another rate hike. With today's action, we have raised interest rates by five percentage points in a little more than a year. Fed Chair Jerome Powell announcing another quarter point raise to interest rates, but opening the door for a change of pace, we think. The way they sort of, they dodge things. Why do they dodge? Because he's hedging his bets. Nike, Timu, Shein, Adidas, and others are facing an inquiry from the House Committee on the CCP, the leaders of the committee, and their concerns about Uyghur labor. Congressman Mike Gallagher. We're also investigating two Chinese companies, Shein and Timu, who are taking advantage of loopholes in our laws to flood the U.S. market with goods that are likely made with Uyghur slave labor. And speaking of Congress, journalist Kate Kelly on the lawmaker stock trades making the public raise an eyebrow. Something like two-thirds of Americans polled by Morning Consult say that they would like there to be a total ban on congressional stock trading. Those stories plus a stock plummet for Paramount Global and some grumblings at Google over CEO Sundar Pichai's big payday. If someone mocks me because I make $200 million, it's going to roll right off my back. It's Thursday, May 4th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Joe Kernan this morning. Becky and Andrew are on assignment. Good afternoon. Before discussing today's meeting, uh, let me comment briefly on recent developments in the banking sector. Conditions in that sector have broadly improved since early March and the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient. We will continue to monitor conditions in the sector. We're committed to learning the right lessons from this episode and will work to prevent events like these from happening again. The Federal Reserve on Wednesday approved its 10th interest rate increase in just a little over a year and dropped a hint that the current tightening cycle might have come to an end. In a unanimous decision, the central bank raised its benchmark rates a quarter point. The increase takes the Fed funds rate to a target range last seen in August of 2007. Markets are more focused, though, on whether the Fed will pause. They're still concerned about economic growth and a banking crisis that's arguably not really over. Our own Steve Leisman, senior economics reporter at CNBC, was at the press conference yesterday with Chair Jay Powell. Oh, thank you. Steve Leisman, CNBC. He, representing the concerns of our viewers, of course, asked about that banking crisis and how it's affected the Fed's decision. Tell us what the Federal Reserve Board did in the wake of that February presentation where you were informed that Silicon Valley Bank and other banks were experiencing interest rate risks. And can you tell me what supervisory actions you've done in the wake of the recent bank failures to make sure that banks are currently appropriately managing interest rate risk? And 
kind of part three, but it's all the same question here. Do you still think this separation principle that monetary policy and supervision can be handled with different tools? Thank you. Powell, in response, said the presentation Steve mentioned didn't suggest any kind of bank run and that there was only one page on Silicon Valley Bank. Further, it wasn't presented as a, quote, urgent or alarming situation. As for the rest of it, well, here's Powell. In terms of what we're doing, of course, uh, I think banks themselves are, are many, many banks are now uh, are attending to liquidity and uh, taking opportunity now, really since, uh, since the events of, of early March, to, to build liquidity. You asked about the separation principle. I, you know, I, I, like so many things, it, it's very useful, um, but you know, ultimately it has its limits. I mean, I, I think in this particular case, we have found that uh, monetary policy tools and the financial stability tools are not in conflict. They're both they're working well together. We've used our our uh, financial stability tools to support banks through our lending facilities. And um, at the same time, we've been able to uh, use our monetary policy tools to foster maximum employment and price stability. Steve, fresh off his trip to Washington, caught up with Squawk's anchors in New York. I thought a pivot was going to be really bullish uh, someday, like months ago. This looks to me like a pivot, but we got this financial issue now sort of hanging over us so that even a pivot is not going to just make us feel absolutely great. Although, only 300 and some points a day before, 270 yesterday. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't call that a huge reaction. And Leesman, the, the disbelief in the Fed being at five and a quarter widened uh, yesterday, right? The, now, what's the difference between the, 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 where the Fed funds are and the two-year? I mean, it, it actually, people believe me even less that they're never going to cut, don't they? Uh, yeah, it widened a bit yesterday. I've got to call up my uh, spreadsheet here. Up your what? Call, I got to call, uh, call up, up your spread, spreadsheet. Uh, oh, call up your, your spreadsheet. Call up my spreadsheet okay. and take a look I, at it. You made up your uh, nose. It is currently uh, updating right now, Joe. But uh, So the gap, let's see where the January 24th, 4.30 minus 5 uh, and an eighth is 82 basis points, 83 yeah. basis points. And so that's the disbelief at the year end right there. And you know, you were on TV yesterday. Did you know that? I, I, I did, I think. You were on TV with Jay Powell. Yeah. I saw you ask, a, I was like, the I know him. The best question. The best question. But I the said press I, conference. But I thought the whole press conference, what, what, what I thought was weird was when he kept saying, when people were saying, are you pausing? He goes, no, we raised rates today, as you saw. So that is not specifically yeah. a pause. And it's like, we understand that, Chairman. But we didn't mean, did you pause today? We meant... Are you pausing now with this? And the way they sort of, they dodge things. Why do they dodge? Because he's hedging his bets. You said it in the, in the makeup room. I know room. I did, but I just thought. Can I, can I reveal what you said? I'm not well, was sure. Was that off the record? Is the makeup room what happened? Well, uh, without, without, without the curse what words that you threw at me. No, that's no. fine. What, Actually, what I, was what I said was, you. there was not much time and only one makeup person. And I said, right. if you, we can. <laughs> that's not what I was going to talk about. I said, if about. we can only do one person, do For Steve. the viewer's sake, you should For, do me. No, I said, do I was being nice. Pretty close call. But but really, what <laughs> what Joe said, I'll tell you, is he goes one lousy inflation report, one strong jobs report, and the Fed will be back to hiking. He'll be back to hiking. So that's why he was hedging his bets. Now, don't you think? Now what what some people think is that Powell was not has not taken the banking stress seriously enough. He said something about, are we there yet? Are we not there yet? Let's just run what Powell said. People did talk about pausing, but not so much at this meeting. You know that we're. I mean, there's there's a sense that we're we're that. 
you know, we're much closer to the end of this than to the beginning. That, you know, as I mentioned, if you, if you add up all the tightening that's going on through various channels, it's, it, it, we, we feel like we, you know, we're getting close or, or maybe even there. So there you go. That's the, that's what you were talking about. That was the perfect I know. sock. I, to it was. Bring it's up the, like a he rope, didn't want to give it it's up. It's like the rope-a-dope, though. It's like, uh, do, you, do you think he saw Friday's drop data? No, I, 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 I that was, think that was a sort of conspiracy theory. That look, he remember, kept it, he kept a, it a possibility because ADP, right. ADP. because Friday was going to be strong. ADP, remember, it doesn't matter how many people we employ. It matters how many people we have to employ. It's a labor. It's a supply thing, right? We right. had this big influx of, of employee of people into the labor force the last couple months. So that kind of made the, the, the stronger job growth kind of palatable from the Fed's point of view. Um, so, look, I, I think that. The difference that I had the other day, yesterday, I was saying I think the Fed should pause is because I thought they should take the banking stress more seriously. And what happened to yeah. the banks in the wake of this was that they went down further. Now, he said he thinks things have broadly improved, conditions have broadly improved since the... Uh, well, I mean, what does that mean? But, I mean, credit conditions have tightened, for sure. We know that for sure. And we know that every single hike, every single time interest rates go higher, that makes it more difficult for the banks and their assets. Right. Right. I, I, I don't look, look here, here's the thing. It broadly improved. How do you mean broadly improved? Right. Four hundred billion dollars is up the banking system in the past month. Uh, the regional bank stocks are down by 33 percent, which or, or more. Gonna actually about, now. Yeah, he's gonna, she's going to read about that. Oh, you want to read that? Well, yeah. No, no. But well. I was just, I, the point I was going to make was I, I was at least. He, um, I felt encouraged because he's so sure that their tool of raising Fed funds will work on inflation. See, I still have, I don't know if that, sure if that's it, right. maybe it works, but it's like 10% of it works, 15%, and all the other stuff that goes along with it might be bad. Maybe, and he kept talking about it, 2%. We are going to get to 2%. As if, okay, if you keep going 25 every time you get a chance, do you get to 2%? Is that, does night follow day like that? That's their belief. They believe that, that is they their can belief. control inflation. And that inflation. made me feel they better. bring it back right. down. But the question is, what's the cost, you know? And right. what's the what's timing the, in which you do it? So, um, or, or the unintended consequences. Which, like, is, maybe like which is the regional banks. As you mentioned, the regional banks, on the heels of the decision, they all went lower. And then yeah. what do we see in the after-hour session? PacWest, Bancorp plunging. Um, it was down in the after-hour session by as much as 60%. It's now down 38% this morning on news that the bank is weighing strategic options. Um, well, let's be clear, it's not a huge bank, right? I guess we have those no, people no, tell us about it. It's a market. Yeah, I mean, compared small. to First Republic, right. for sure. Or SVB, right, right, right. right, right. I mean, it's sub-billion it, dollars it, it, It's here. certainly not very big anymore. But, but you take a look <laughs> at the action yeah. in, a, in a Western alliance, as well as the Zions, as well as a Comerica, and you think... The whole lot of them. If, if everything is playing out, is going to play out in the same way, it may not be one First Republic, but combined, it may have the same sort of impact. CNBC has learned that Google employees have been complaining about CEO Sundar Pichai's pay raise on internal discussion forums. Posts viewed by CNBC show employees have been mocking the CEO for his total compensation of $226 million last year at a time when the company has been aggressively cutting costs, including eliminating 12,000 jobs. That compensation included a $218 million stock award, which Pichai receives every three years. Employees pointed out that Apple CEO Tim Cook received a 40% pay cut in January, and Zoom CEO Eric Yuan said he would reduce his salary by 98% and decline his bonus after his firm cut jobs. I don't know if mocking is, is the right word. 
You know what I mean? You can Maybe complain. You can, yeah, agree. Yeah. A complain. Insulted. Because do you think he's like? Like everybody someone, should bear the brunt if, of, of. If someone mocks me because I make two hundred million dollars, I'm going to roll right off my back, isn't it? It's going to like. I mean, I understand how they could say, look, you're laying off. I, that, that's not really mocking, though. It's like if someone gets to the point where you've done something so well, and, and people argue, do CEOs, do, does a left-hander deserve $40 million? I don't know. But if you do something so well that you're in that position, right. I don't know if mocking. Uh, I, we'll reevaluate the I word, think, and I think the next time I read that, I'll, yeah. I'll be sure okay. to change it. I mean, I think he's pretty I'll cool. I'll take that into consideration. Earnings alert on Paramount Global, which is down by 14%. The company nice. added subscribers in the quarter, 4.1 million subscribers, but did miss on estimates. It's also cutting its dividend to put that money into its streaming business. So we're watching these shares under a lot of pressure this morning. That's sort of the, the story of a lot, a lot of these streamers, Joe, and that is you can gain subscribers, but at what cost do you gain the subscribers? And in this sort of interest rate environment, do you want to pay for that? I, you know, it's all coming back to me. You know, I, I, I'm never cutting my cord, okay? So I'm a legacy cable guy. Suddenly, what, what's going on? Are, are there any buzz feeds or any of these new media entities that are going to... Suddenly, New York Times, is, is subscriptions are soaring. Uh-huh. What's old is, is not going away. Right. My world is not leaving forever, okay? <laughs> and I'm going to hold on you tight many... until I'm like <laughs> dead fingers. But no, aren't we reevaluating streaming? I mean, look at I Disney. I think so. I mean, what, Hulu. Well, I think that Remember investors Hulu? are you take it. No, you take it. No, you take the it. streaming model and what it costs to gain subscribers. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Nike, Shein, Timu, all facing pressure from Congress. Why Congressman Mike Gallagher and his colleagues are focused on labor in China. We just want transparency. We want U.S. consumers to know what they're buying. And we don't want to be inadvertently supporting genocide, which is unthinkable in the present day, but it's happening in Xinjiang. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Joe Kernan. Becky and Andrew are off today. In a series of letters, the heads of the House Select Committee on China have requested information uh, from U.S. and China-based companies, including Nike, Adidas, Shein, and Timu, on whether they're importing products to the U.S. that are made by forced labor. Joining us now, Congressman Mike Gallagher is the chairman of the House Select Committee. Uh, on China. And uh, I know you were s- supposed to be on before, Congressman. It's great to have you on. I don't know what happened last time. I think maybe uh, 
can't remember, but I've seen you on, on every other cable outlet, and I'm glad you're finally here. So we asked the question, are these companies benefiting from, from that type of labor? Well, there's allegations that were unearthed uh, during the hearing that the select committee had on the ongoing genocide in, in Xinjiang. I mean, 80% of cotton is sourced from Xinjiang region in China. And so what we're asking is for Nike and Adidas to address these allegations that were unearthed at our hearing. And we're also investigating, as you mentioned, two Chinese companies, Xi'an and Timu, who are taking advantage of loopholes in our laws to flood the U.S. market with goods that are likely made with Uyghur slave labor. Based on the principle that I think consumers need to be aware if they're buying goods made with slave labor. If you remember when we passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, profoundly bipartisan bill, it had a de minimis exemption, which enabled shipments that are valued at less than $800 to avoid customer scrutiny, duty, or tax. So more than 2 million packages a day enter the U.S. without forced labor scrutiny because of the de minimis exemption. Our concern is that these companies might be exploiting the de minimis loophole, which was designed to minimize the burden on our customs agents so that they wouldn't have to examine every package under the sun. And now that these companies are using that in order to underprice their American competitors, that's the concern with Sheen and Timo. So again, we just want transparency. We want U.S. consumers to know what they're buying, and we don't want to be inadvertently supporting genocide, which is unthinkable in the present day, but it's happening in Xinjiang. Also, uh, stay with us, Congressman. Also joining us, uh, House Select Committee on uh, China Ranking Member, Raja Krishnamurthy. Uh, and Congressman, you, you heard uh, Congressman uh, Gallagher. What can you add uh, to, to the discussion uh, just in general? Well, I'm, I'm pleased that this is a bipartisan investigation with my friend and colleague, uh, Chairman Gallagher. Um, I think that this is um, one of those situations where, you know, Americans don't want to subsidize or buy uh, products made with forced labor. And we know that in Xinjiang, uh, while the Uyghur people are facing a genocide, they're also being made to work in these factories uh, producing goods for various supply chains, including the fabric and apparel and textile supply chains. And so that's why we've um, identified these four companies that witnesses uh, at a hearing before us in March had identified as potentially sourcing products, and we got to stop it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be back in a second, uh, Congressman. But Congressman Gallagher, I don't want to do whataboutism or, or relativism, but I mean, we moved an all-star game because of, I, I don't know, a voting uh, legislation that, that was asking for IDs, however you view that. At the same time, there's things that, that are happening in China to these major multinationals that are so uh, virtuous when it comes to things that happen in the United States. And they're, they're almost a blind eye is turned to, to what's going on in China. This is just one small part of this, this whole thing, which is hard to understand, the hypocrisy. Well, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on. It seems to me that a lot of times the most uh, ardent ESG evangelists on Wall Street are the ones that are most willing to turn a blind eye to the atrocities happening in Xinjiang, as well as just the general aggression from the Chinese Communist Party. And by the way, if you analyze the CCP's behavior on the E, the S, and the G, it's probably one of the worst actors in the world. So I think we should have a consistent standard across the board. Increasingly, too, one thing for your world, for Squawk Box listeners, I think we have to take seriously the threats that Xi Jinping continues to make about taking Taiwan by force if necessary. You can't view that as some distant tail risk. That has to be priced into your business model. 
And so one thing I hope we can encourage major multinational companies to do is to start de-risking, diversifying their supply chain. Because if we find ourselves in a confrontation with China over Taiwan, they're going to have to absorb a lot of pain and American consumers are going to absorb a lot of pain. So all the more reason we need to be smart about this on the front end. Congressman uh, Kristen Murthy, I mean, you think about just the big issue for companies like Apple or, or, or Starbucks or that have such a vested interest in China. How do we I mean, you heard uh, Congressman Gallagher about Taiwan. What would you do if you were Tim Cook? How would you prepare for, for that possible um, outcome? I think. Folks like Tim Cook and others need to do two things. One is uh, they need to uh, increasingly think about, you know, what does it mean to have redundant supply chains uh, that don't necessarily involve sourcing all your stuff from the PRC, uh, and that means potentially even moving it back to the USA uh, to to manufacture some of these items or to other countries. The second thing is I think that folks like Tim Cook and others. Um, are actually um, people that the CCP might be listening to. Uh, and I think they should use their voice uh, with regard to some of the issues that we care about so much, whether it's Taiwan or other matters. Um, but I think that um, uh, folks here in the U.S. are going to have to think hard about their um, supply chains and their connections to the PRC, because at the end of the day, uh, the CCP is a strategic adversary and competitor to us, and we have to protect our values and our interests, even at the same time that we engage them. Very good. Uh, thank you. Thank you to you both, uh, both congressmen. We appreciate uh, having you on today. It's, we got to talk more uh, eventually on, on this. Um, we got at the bottom. The coupling. Do we need to do that? Thank you. Up next on Squawk Pod, lawmaker stock trades, a look at the holdings and the timing of stock sales from some of our elected officials with New York Times journalist Kate Kelly. Ro Khan is a great example. Michael McCall, who's one of the most active traders. Josh Gotthammer, Daniel Goldman, our, our new representative in New York. These guys all have family wealth. They have a broker that trades the assets. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod today with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee. Here's Melissa. Amid regional bank failures, lawmakers have been cashing out, so it appears, according to Watchdog Capital Trades. First Republic Bank was the most heavily sold stock on the Hill in March. Those sales aggregated an estimated $48,000 between at least five members of the U.S. House of Representatives. One of those lawmakers, Representative Lois Frankel of Florida, sold First Republic on March 16th, she then bought shares of J.P. Morgan before it purchased the embattled regional bank. In a statement, Representative Frankel said, quote, My account is managed independently by a money manager who buys and sells stocks at his discretion. Joining us now with more is Kate Kelly, money and policy reporter at The New York Times and a CNBC contributor. Kate, you know, some of these guys have these amazing money managers who time trade so well. I want to get those names and put them on our network because they're able to sell First Republic at exactly the right time and buy other banks at the exact. I mean, on the surface, it looks awful. 
Was yeah. that at the right time, though? And we're going to talk about Roe. We had Roe Khan on yesterday. It was down 80% when his guy sold it. So I don't, well, for it, it, for, for, I'm March 16th, of, uh, where I'm was I'm thinking it? of Frankel, and I'm thinking of Melania yeah. Talk. Were these much higher? Was it much higher? So if you sold in sort of that second week, of, or really third week of March, around the 15th, 16th, 17th, you did manage to avert some additional losses. But naturally, like, you had already participated in a big downturn. So... It's really the optics in this case, more so than, you know, averted losses, I would yeah. say. As you say, Melissa, you know, people find it really outrageous. Something like two-thirds of Americans polled by Morning Consult um, say that they would like there to be a total ban on congressional stock trading. And the thing is, there are some members I've talked to who have said, we're privy to no inside information. About banks. That doesn't sound right, though, because they are routinely uh, invited to confidential briefings on the war in Ukraine before it broke out. Or military assistance that we are planning to provide them. The coronavirus, famously, back in early 2020, when the public really didn't know the extent of what was likely to happen, and or banking crises. The issue with Maliotakis, which you and I have talked about before, Melissa, is she bought shares of New York Community Bank at an opportune moment before there was an upswing. And the upswing was, was fueled at least in part by the fact that that bank bought some assets from um, Signature Bank in New York. And she had had meetings with New York State bank regulators in that period of That's time. That's a good one. The, the f selling the First Republic when it's, I mean, none of us knew that the, the, the deposit flight was just going to get worse and worse and right. continue. I thought, you know, at 14, when it was already down, I don't know how much, it was probably down 70%. Yeah. At that point, did Congress people know any more than we did about where it was headed? I, I, think, I think the chip stuff. I think Paul, I, and I love Paul Pelosi, he's a wonderful, great guy, I've met him, but, but some of that stuff was really unbelievable, wasn't it? The chip stuff? I mean, it, it, it seems like you, we were involved with a lot of actual litigation that would have benefited chip. You could have known something to, well, to have some pretty good timing there. Well, with the chip stuff, we looked at that closely last year. And time nothing there either? I wouldn't say nothing, but it's just... The thing about the CHIPS Act was it was very well telegraphed for years, and we knew which semi-companies were going to benefit from it. Now, so everybody knew. Don't get me wrong. Pelosi's a terrific trader. He, he is. deals primarily in options, and he, to the, to the extent you can game out the gains here, because it's hard. There are a lot of unknowns in these congressional filings. It appears that he's done extremely well. Right. He did well before yeah. any of that stuff. Though. Yeah. He's a, good, he's a smart businessman. But, but I'm glad you brought this up because to the extent there's a counter-argument, a pushback against banning the stock trading that, that so many people find problematic, there are members and member spouses who make a living at this. You know, there's, there's a right. senator from Minnesota whose husband is a professional medical equipment investor. Like, that is his livelihood. And it happens that she is, among other things, very active on insulin prices coming down. Um, and he has invested in some insulin-related products. Yeah. So do you give you up your, your career? Spouse not, yeah. Right. Does Paul Pelosi, I mean, at this point, perhaps he will, but like, you know, historically Was she speaking. elected to be this active specifically on insulin pricing and drug pricing? Because she could say, I will recuse myself from this issue and work on something else. Well, there was, it's a good question. There was a famous uh, case, very tragic case in Minnesota a few years ago. Um, and I'm, unfortunately, I think this happens all the time but where a younger man had gone without insulin because he couldn't afford it and died. Um, and so in his memory, and just because oh. she's motivated by the issue, she and others have been very active on bringing insulin prices down. Um, and her husband happens to have these investments. So it's one of those things. It's like for her constituents, should she give up on that issue? Right. That doesn't seem right. 
if you have this very tailored career that you've had forever and the job security of a senator is six years of a House member, it's two, do you give up your career? Um, some of the others we've, we've just mentioned at the top, Ro Khanna is a great example. Yep. Another is Michael McCall, who's one of the most active traders. Uh, yeah. Josh Gotthammer, Daniel Goldman, our, our new representative in New York. These guys all have family wealth. They have a broker that trades the assets, typically of their spouses, sometimes their children. And uh, they say, look, it's diversified. It's basically the S&P. We're not in the know other than the filings that you're talking about. Can, here's Ro. Uh, we asked uh, Representative Akana uh, about his recent trades. He was on the uh, show yesterday. And um, he disclosed share purchases of First Republic on March 9th and 10th and sold just a few days later on the 15th. Here's what he had to say when we asked him. It's not my money. It's my wife's money. It's in a blind trust. It's, it's diversified. And they had some sales, which was after the stock was already 80% down and it was at a loss. I just sort of feel like we're headed towards, towards something. Are we not where this is not you're not gonna be able to do this like regulation? Point. Yeah, I'm no like there, there's no I don't I don't think this has legs. You know, uh, we came no. close last year, arguably um, there. There have been several bills in circulation. They're bipartisan. I should add Abigail Spanberger and it's who still comes not going to work is a real active. Who's who blocks it? So do people that benefit from it stop it? Um, the counter argument is, uh, first of all, it's what I was just talking about. Yeah, Second of all, it's, um, you don't and, want and this I think is a McConnell argument from what I've heard. Right. It, it, it puts a damper on new talent. Right. If you, people are going to come into you don't want a bunch service, of, we see how academics manage their affairs. We don't want a bunch of academics. It'd be nice right. if some real world people were in Congress, would it not? Yeah. I mean, if there ever was a moment, it, it was late last year when a senior deputy to, um, Nancy Pelosi, Zoe Lofgren came out with a pretty comprehensive, uh, ban with some nuances to it. And it was on the calendar for like two seconds and then Steny Hoyer said, oh, we don't have time, let's take it up in the lame duck and they never did. Mm. God, I love Washington. <laughs> you know, it was, I didn't know this, as you said, my daughter is that, she said it was built on a swamp. That's why it's called a swamp. No, no, yes, of course yes, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's so why. So it's not because it's a swamp, it was built on a swamp, so it is a swamp. Yeah, it is a swamp. It is and actually it is, a swamp. It is a swamp and it is a swamp. I think in, bo in both in both the <laughs> ecological respect right. and exactly. the uh, political revolving right. exactly. door respect. Yes. Well said. Kate, thank you. Great to see you. Great to see Kate you. Kelly of The New York Times. That's the podcast for today on our rundown tomorrow. Open AI CEO Sam Altman, the guy behind chat GPT. Make sure you follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now and turn on your notifications because you do not want to miss that conversation. Squawk Pod is only part of what we do here at CNBC. For our three-hour live TV broadcast, check out Squawk Box, which is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. A big thank you to Melissa Lee for filling in today. We'll meet you back here for that OpenAI interview tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.